everyone and welcome to the Pet Professional Guild June Advocacy Panel at our special time, 6 p.m. And uh, we're doing that to give some other folks a chance to participate. Our topic tonight is how do the PPG guiding principles differ from Lima? And we decided to talk about this because, as you know, the past six months there's been lots of talk in the pet training community. And we're really an unregulated or underregulated industry, depending on who's, who, you, who, you want, who you want to listen to. But anyone who would suggest we're overregulated, yeah, that's just not the truth. And over the years, different groups within the industry have developed their own guidelines in an attempt to self-regulate about what is appropriate and not appropriate in the care and training of a pet. And so today we're going to talk about the two of the most uh, well-known of those guidelines. One is the Pet Professional Guild Guiding Principles, and the other is uh, called Least Intrusive, Minimally Aversive uh, Lima Guidelines. And these were put together in a joint product by uh, the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants and the Certification Council for Professional Dog Trainers. Uh, they were the ones that were fundamentally behind that. But I've got five questions that I'm going to put to the panel ahead of time for a change. This is what I would like us to try to answer, as well as anything we get from our uh, those that are listening to the panel tonight. But the five questions are, first of all, what are the PPG guiding principles? Two, what is LIMA? How do the guiding principles in LIMA differ and why does it matter? How do we get our own profession to better understand the differences between these approaches to self-regulation? And lastly, how do we get the average person with a pet to understand the importance of ethical standards and principles in our profession considering we are underregulated? So we're gonna start with the first and that is what are the PPG guiding principles? And Nikki, I'm gonna pick on you to start because you were really fundamental in establishing those guidelines. Okay, well, let me um, let me go back a couple of steps. First of all, good evening, everyone. Good evening, panel. Hi, Eddie, didn't get a chance to say hello to you earlier, so welcome, good to see you. Um, okay, so in 2011, having left a high street pet store in absolute floods of tears, having watched one of their employed dog trainers swinging a dog in the air on a choke collar because it was reacting to other dogs. Um, I left my shopping cart and walked out of the store and just burst into floods of tears because I felt so helpless. And my husband rushed over thinking that I'd been mugged or something because I was just in an absolute mess and went home. And he said to me, um, rather than just cry about it, why don't you do something? And at the time, I, like many of you, was a member of several associations, but didn't really feel that any of them represented me because I used to go and look at myself on the directory and find myself sandwiched between shot collar trainers. And that really worried me that these professional directories were just sort of popping people on there if they paid a piece of money. So I sat down that evening and I thought to myself, um, sorry, I'm just smiling because I've just noticed my dog sitting in the background of the screen. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I thought to myself, can can we put together a, a, a sort of guiding principle that helps helps stir us and helps keep us t- moving towards a do north that are ethical, but more importantly, that are feasible, right? Because there's no point in just writing up a bullet point of dream, of dream points, if they're not really um, reasonable. So I sat down that night and scribbled them out onto a piece of paper and PPG wasn't even formed at this point. And I thought, well, f- first of all, you know, dog trainers that don't need to use shock, prong or choke. And why those three pieces of equipment? Because they are all fundamentally designed to work through pain or fear. Because as we know, any piece of equipment, including a clicker, can be abused if not used correctly. So we had three pieces of equipment that were sort of non-negotiables. And then we had three approaches, which is no pain, no force, no fear. So I wrote those down and then sort of did a double check to myself and said, okay, if I was working with a dog that had aggression, if I was working with a dog that was reacting, if I was working with a puppy, if I was working with separation anxiety, can the tools that I've got in my toolkit, positive reinforcement, either operant or respondent conditioning, and differential reinforcement, do I have all the tools that I need to be able to help modify that pet's behavior? And the answer was absolutely, in terms of equipment and approach. And then the next question was, can I truly operate without using pain, force, or fear? And the answer categorically was yes, if I can understand the communication system of the animal I'm working with, because I have to be able to read their body language, which is the only way that they can communicate to me if they feel safe or afraid or anxious. So, so basically the PPG's guiding principles are two, there's two components. There is the non-negotiables and the non-negotiables are no pain, no force, no fear, no shock, no prong, no choke. And then the second component speaks to not just not, just not doing harm, but always doing good. And we recognize that PPG that the non-negotiables are eligibility criteria for membership. So if somebody's using any of those tools or they're training with pain, force or fear, they are not eligible for membership. Anything else that comes up in our um, behavior consulting process that has an ethical question is not a straightforward yes or no, because one has to actually look at what is the practitioner doing? What impact is that having on the pet? And is the pet comfortable therefore is what they're doing ethical so just a little just digress a little bit because um not all of our of our ethical complaints are cut and dry and I'm going to give you an example I had a very angry member a few weeks ago that sent in an ethics complaint about another trainer and said the trainer's flooding and we said where's the evidence and they said well I don't have evidence but that they said that this is what they do well just because someone says this is what they're doing doesn't actually mean that's what what they're doing right you have to functionally analyze what is happening during that interaction so the guiding principles highlight the pieces of equipment that are non-negotiable and the philosophical approaches that are non-negotiable so within that within the guiding principles professional members of ppg have the autonomy to work with whatever they deem is suitable differential reinforcement Um, negative punishment, positive reinforcement, as long as they stay away from pain, force or fear or prong, choke and shock. Thank you, Nikki. Very good description. And um, here we are 12 years later and um, those principles have been in force for a while. And I know in 2014, 
uh, is when I really learned about PPG and they were a major decision in my deciding to become a member and leaving some other associations behind because it is exactly what I had been looking for uh, as well. Um, does anyone else that's on the panel want to speak specifically to the PPG guiding principles at this point? Zazie. I actually just want to say a big thank you to Nikki for setting up this organization and everyone else who was involved in it, because I think it showed great leadership and I think PPG still continues to show great leadership within this profession in terms of the guiding principles that people use and follow if they're members of the profession and I know we're moving on to the other approaches soon, but I think other organizations, some of them are moving closer to the PPG's guiding principles, but they're still not the same as PPG's guiding principles and like you Don, that is one of the reasons why I wanted to join this organization because they were so clear about no shock, no prong, no choke, etc, no force. And I think it's really important to have those clear descriptions. So I'm very grateful to Nikki and everyone who was involved in setting this up um, all those years ago and for keeping it going, obviously, since then. Yeah, it seems so long ago now, doesn't it? And and the guiding principles, we've actually never changed them, except for, I think Susan Nilsson did some copy editing and put some commas and periods in there, but they remain the same today as they were back in 2011. Only now they're also supported by the Ethical Code of Conduct, which is a much longer document and speaks more to our ethical approaches to not just animals, because I think it's also really important that we have to practice what we preach, right? We have to be the same with people. We can't, we can't advocate for animals and then be asses to other people. I mean, that's, that's just a complete contradiction. And I know Eddie speaks to that and I'm sure he'll speak to that a bit later. Eddie, welcome. Glad you could be here tonight. Glad we set this time for you. Would you like to be our expert on Lima? Uh, sure, I can talk a little bit about it. And I, I did just give a, a seminar on this this past week. Um, sorry, I was having some mic and camera issues just at the start here, but uh, I couldn't get my external mic to work. So we're working off my webcam mic. So I hope that's okay. Hope I sound okay. Sounds okay. Um, okay, good. Um, so what is, what specifically did you want? Uh, I mean, I, I can talk more generally, but I'm, I'm more than happy to give a little bit of a history of, of Lima like I did in, in my seminar or um, well, I think but... I think a history of it. And then, I mean, what we really want to do today is contrast the guiding principles with, with Lima and how they differ and why why the differences matter, but I think to start with, you know, a, a history of it and how it came about. Sure, sure. Um, and, and I'll point out a couple differences. And, um, you know, my, my seminar this past week was about proposing an alternative model, an alternative approach uh, to Lima called the least inhibitive functionally effective framework or life framework. Um, so, which I, I hope you'll be hearing more about, um, but we don't, we won't go into that for now. Let's just talk a little bit about some of that history. Um, Lima was really, uh, the first time it showed up was in Stephen Lindsay's 2005 handbook, where he described Lima. Um, and uh, we see that two components of it, at least intrusive, minimally aversive. What I've always said about that is that it's it, it's problematic in the sense that there's a redundancy 
that's built in, but the redundant, right? So least intrusive, minimally aversive. It's saying the same thing twice, but it almost has to because the term intrusive is so poorly operationalized in terms of what that means that Lima has to say it twice in its own acronym. So that said, Lima, I think, uh, regard, I'll, I'll mention a little bit of the history here in a second, but uh, there's no doubt that Lima has been uh, important for the force free training community in helping foster uh, uh, some of these general principles. I think that that's critical. I do have a number of criticisms, and I think that's what we need to progress beyond, but I don't want to take away from the fact that many trainers for many years have used Lima as a way to describe their approach. And I think that that's worth recognizing that that's been important uh, for the force retraining community. Now that said, I think this is the part that comes as a little shocker. What did Lindsay mean and what, what was his intended use for Lima? Well, I gave a number of quotes in my, in my seminar that come directly from the 2005 book. I think it's worth noting that immediately on the page, I think a couple pages after describing Lima, he's showing and describing the utility of choke collars, of prong collars, um, and showing all of these pictures of them and how they can be used. So what Stephen Lindsay really developed Lima to be used for was not to avoid the use of aversives, but rather to figure out what's the least intrusive, minimally aversive, aversive that you can use. That was clearly his intent. He said, you know, you want to do as little damage as possible because we know we need to use these aversive tools. And he was very clear in saying, we know we need to use these aversive tools. So I'll just give you a couple quotes and then I'll, I'll shut up and let other people respond. Um, maybe a few quotes. Um, and these are all, I gave these in my seminar that that video is available on the Shelter Playgroup Alliance's YouTube channel for anybody that wants to see the full seminar. Um, so this is the first quote where he defines the first time Lima shows up in print. According to the least intrusive and minimally aversive model, aversives are ranked in terms of their relative severity and intrusiveness requiring that the trainer apply a less aversive technique before advancing to a more aversive one. So that's part of where he's setting up that it's not meant to avoid or remove the use of aversives, but determine, hey, what's what, because you, you have to use, according to Lindsay, an aversive tool. So what's going to do the least damage is the way that he's setting Lima up. So let me give you a few more quotes. Um, this is one of this on that same page where page 29 of the 2005 handbook, where he defines what Lima is, he says this, although some vitriolic and unproductive hyperbole bubbles up now and then against the use of various training collars, most experienced and competent trainers agree that such tools have a functional and humane place in dog training. So if anybody's arguing that Lindsay was, you know, when he created Lima, he didn't intend 
to use aversive tools. That's on the same page where he defines what Lima is. So I think it's pretty clear. Uh, just a couple other quick quotes. The proper use of the prong collar as a shaping and polishing tool requires significant instruction, but with respect to basic control uses, novice trainers can rapidly master the prong collar. That's two pages after he defines Lima, page 31, in describing how to use a prong collar. And this final quote at the end of his text, aversive procedures are legitimate and valuable tools for controlling undesirable behavior. That's page 725. So I don't think that there's really any doubt that Lima was intended to support the use of aversive training tools. I think what's amazing to me is that the, the force-free training community has used it as a model for going on close to two decades, 18 years now, that this is not, that was 2005, Kelly. Um, Kelly just asked in the chat, what year did Lindsay write this? So, and this is not ancient history either. So let's be clear, Lima this year turns old enough to vote. So we're not talking about ancient history. So uh, that said, I would argue that Lima has been used. Uh, it has been redefined and used by force-free trainers. Well, unknowingly I redefined, I think, um, but it has been used differently and has produced good. But I don't think we can continue to use Lima as a model given this kind of information. So that would be my argument. Thanks for Just that. To, I, I mean, how many how many of us have got that three handbook set and never even seen that? I mean, I, I put my video off so I could run to my bookshelf, but it's actually in my other office, so I wasn't able to grab it. But I think very few people realize that that is the underpinning for Lima. No, I didn't. I've, I've got those three books and um, I was wondering, okay, where, where, where is that one? Because yeah, but not that we don't, don't believe you, Eddie. Um, oh, I, the page numbers and for everybody that wants to check those four quotes I just gave the first two page 29, the, the third quote page 31, as I said, when I read the quotes and the final quote page 725. So please, Thank you. That, I mean, yeah. I, as a scientist, it means I'm skeptical about everything. I think every single word of anything anyone says should always be fact-checked. So please fact-check me on that. Go to the now, Lindsay book. I, I, I swear, and I could be wrong, but hearing the, the guys from SeaWorld at an APDT conference many, many years ago, prior to 2005, talking about something that sounded like Lima, but uh, maybe, maybe I'm... No, uh, Don, what you're thinking of is uh, what, uh, what they call at that time when they first developed it, what was called the, the least reinforcing stimulus or They're, the LRF. Yeah, okay, yep, you're yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. Now, yep. It's now called the least reinforcing scenario. And okay. I'm not going to open up the can of worms of what that is either. Um, no, but that's... the LRS is actually a particular training method. Um, it's a particular set of procedures to do when you're faced with unwanted an unwanted response um, that we don't we don't need to go into any further discussion, but it's the LRS. Yeah. Well, so that, we, we've got a uh, question I, here. 
Sorry, I, I just I wanted to respond really quickly also because Kelly asked, are they in the process of revising yes. Lima or no? Um, I, I mean, there's no, look, people have defined Lima, organizations have defined Lima as they saw fit um, since its inception, right? So IAABC has its own interpretation of Lima. Um, every organization that, that uses Lima has their own interpretation. There's no, Lindsay has never changed his definition of Lima the way that he proposed it. And, Le and Lindsay, to this day, another important piece of information, continues to be a proponent of shock collars and these other aversive training tools. So don't think that Stephen Lindsay wrote this, you know, in a, I don't know, after a rough night at the bar and regretted writing it. Right. He wrote this and continues to hold to this philosophy. As far as I know, he has never written anything to contradict this approach that I know of. And he continues to av advocate for the use of shock collars. Kim. I have a question for Eddie. Um, Eddie, you've referenced the force free community utilizing Lima over you know, the last 18 years. But I'm curious about your use of the term force-free community and where that term originates from, because I've I've heard that there was actually a, a trademark for a shock collar called force-free. My experience as a trainer is that the Pet Professional Guild um, has been the originator of that. I, I don't know where the truth yeah. lies. Let, let, me let me just talk to that trademark, because first and foremost, you can't trademark common language English words. You can't stop other people using common language English words. There was somebody in Chicago that had the force free training method on his website with the TM emblem. And when we trademarked the Association for Force Free Professionals back in 2011, we had a lawyer run all the searches and that trademark was not active. It had never been granted for that very reason because you can't trademark common English language. But a lot of people see the TM and assume that legally everything's in place behind the scenes. Now, when we trademarked, we didn't trademark force free because you can't trademark force free. What we had to trademark was the association of or for, I don't remember, force free professionals. The entire sentence is trademarked. Um, and we did that just to give it more punch. Now, with that said, when we first started PPG and I put the steering committee and the board of directors together, um, there was a, actually the most difficult discussion that took place was about the label force free because half of the people wanted to use it and half didn't. I didn't really care either way because I felt that I felt labels are okay if there is a standard operating definition and everybody has shared meaning about what that said label means, right? And that's why I get a little irritated sometimes when people say, well, it's just a label. There's nothing wrong with labels as long as they have shared meaning and everyone's using it in the same way. So when I say force free, you and I, now even the word aggression is a label because if we were all asked to describe aggression on a piece of paper, we'd all give extremely different uh, definitions. So I don't know where it first came from, but it was out there when we first started. And, and you will have actually noticed over the last five years that we have actually started to move away from it um, because, be, because we don't really feel that it fully encompasses what we do. And that's why now 
we tend to use the trademark guided by um guided by science governed by science guided by ethics something by i don't remember empathy because we felt that was actually more descriptive than force free so just to interject that i'm sure eddie has some stuff to throw on that as well zazzy you had your hand up and then i want to throw a question yeah. I did. I, I wanted to thank Eddie for sharing those quotes because I think they're very illuminating. Mm -hmm. And I also just wanted to address those quotes of those things that, that Lindsay said in that, because notice that he used the word hyperbole to this to um, describe people complaining about the use of aversive methods. Mm -hmm. And he used the word humane to describe aversive methods. Mm -hmm. So I just want to be really clear, it's not hyperbole and it's not humane. And of course, now there's mm -hmm. almost 20 more years of research subsequent to that, which shows very clearly that the use of aversive methods has risks for dogs, including the risks of fear, anxiety, stress, um, pessimism, a worse relationship with the owner and, and so on. Um, so we have a lot more research on that subsequent to that, which I think is not necessarily what's changed people's minds, but it, it, it adds to that, you know, those guiding principles and to position statements that people make. And so it's not hyperbole at all. And I, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but given that that's what Lindsay said, I just wanted to stress that there's there's a lot of work being done on that. Well, uh, and that gets to what my question was going to be, because there is a lot of science now that suggests shock prong and choke collars should never ever be used can can you address some of some of that research and maybe mention the uh american animal hospital behavior management um guidelines the avsab humane dog training position statement so our listeners understand that you know that lindsay's position is uh not even on thin ice it's underwater <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there are lots and lots of organizations now that have position statements that we should not use aversive methods, even when pets have behavior issues. That includes the American uh, Veterinary Society for Animal Behavior, um, which had a new position statement or an updated version of their position statement um, about 18 months ago that came out, as well as a whole load of organizations such as Aha Vet Hospitals, obviously fear free in their approach to training, lots of organizations like the BCSPCA, Dogs Trust, the RSPCA in the UK, um, Kennel Club in the UK, for example. So many, many organizations now mm. have position statements saying that you should not use aversive methods in any circumstances to train your dog. Um, which is, is really important and it's an important message for the public to get across. There are some countries which have banned the use of electronic shock collars, um, in some cases including as bark collars or perimeter fences as well. Um, you probably heard that quite recently the UK announced that, uh, sorry, the English Parliament announced that they're finally going to ban shock collars in England. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of research on this. And specifically for the UK, there was some English research that led into that, which was a piece of research that looked at dogs being trained recall in the presence of livestock, sheep. And they picked that circumstance because that's a situation in which for a long time shock collar trainers have claimed that erroneously that this is the best way to train dogs and they were completely wrong and the research shows that they were completely wrong and so they had trainers come and train dogs either using shock or using reward-based methods but all of those dogs were wearing either an active collar or an inactivated collar so that observers who were assessing the research couldn't tell 
or couldn't tell unless the dog yelped or responded in some way to the shock, which did happen. Um, and that research showed signs of stress in the dogs trained with shock. And also, interestingly, it showed that the dogs trained with rewards performed better. So they responded better to the training. And that's one of a few studies which actually suggests that reward-based training may work better than aversives training, as well as not having these risks. And I think that specific bit we still need a bit more research on, but it's important to bear in mind. And one of the possible reasons is simply that dogs are more motivated. Another possible reason that comes from that study is that trainers who are using reward-based methods know more about dog behavior. And we know that people who know more about dog behavior, whether they're trainers or ordinary people, are much more likely to use reward-based methods. I could yeah, go let, on for a long just, time, but it, I, I let, want to throw it over to someone else. Thank you. Let, let, let me throw in really quick. I think the two, a couple of studies Zazie just referenced there should be Cooper et al. Um, I didn't bother looking like 2011-ish, something like that. Zazie also has a wonderful reference list um, out there online. Um, and that would be great, Zazie, if you could put that link out there. And the second study that was the follow-up that you were mentioning is China et al., which I think is 2017, 2018-ish. I'm going off memory, and I know people are always like, oh, he just knows references. But I, so we'll see how close I am. Somebody, Zazie, do you know the years on those? Um, I'm, I'm just pulling up the references and I'm going to post them, post them in the chat. And Cooper, and, Cooper at yeah. all was one and China at all is the second, which Cooper and China are involved in, in both those. Uh, but those are the first authors. Um, China so it should is, be around 20. When, China is that? 2020. China is 2020 okay. and Cooper et al. is 2014. Ah, I was off by three years on both. OK, so <laughs> pretty um, close. <laughs> So uh, uh, the, the, I did want to address, because Kim was asking about force-free and the use of force, and I agree exactly uh, with what Nikki was saying about this and, and the, the concerns. Um, I've expressed, at the end of the day, we don't have great, um, a, a great set of terminology, something simple enough to describe uh, the community as a whole, because there's a lot of variability in the community as a whole. Um, so I, I can think of four descriptions, well, five-ish, that have been thrown around. And I, I would say, um, and I've, we've had this discussion even here before. Um, I've, so we've heard, I tended to use for a long time reward-based training methods, We've also heard reinforcement-based training methods. Uh, Force-free uh, is the other term, um, science-based training um, and uh, clicker training. Um, so the, of those five, the two that I like least, the one that I like absolute least is science-based training. Um, and I'll just simply tell you why. Uh, it's because it's not clear what that metric is, and by definition, punishment works. If it didn't, people wouldn't use it. By the functional operational definition that has been has existed within behavior analysis by either of the definitions that have existed in behavior analysis, but certainly the definition that has existed since Azrin and Holtz, which is what we're used to, um, punishment works. So 
It's not clear what the metric we're, we mean by, and saying evidence-based, I'm not sure that means much more. Um, we're, we, our metric should be more than it's based in science. Our metric is what impact does it have on welfare and our relationship with the animals that we're working with, right? Um, certainly, we can talk about the success of the method too, which is what Zazie just addressed um, with those references. And there, every time it's compared, that, that argument is often used the other way. Oh, you can't get the same thing with positive reinforcement that you can get with shock collars or choke collars or prong collars. And that just gets blown out of the water every time, not surprisingly, um, including the herding uh, studies that were done by, by Cooper et al. and China et al. Um, so uh, I don't like science-based, so that kind of, and clicker training, I think, is the most limiting. So those two terms, of those five that I just mentioned, I'm sure there's other descriptors out there. Um, I, I think reinforcement-based training is misleading because uh, not everything that we're talking about is, is just reinforcement. Um, and also reinforcement is defined functionally. So this is, it's one of the reasons why I use the term reward. And that's really the difference between the terms reward and reinforcement is that reward does not require empirical data to show you that something is reinforcing, which is what reinforcement requires. So I'm just being very technical there. But that's part of why I I use force-free or fear-free. Uh, Debbie just asked, what about fear-free? I think both of those, as long as you're willing to use a general operational definition of what force or fear means. And for me, what force means is that the animal is required to do this to be able to terminate whatever procedure is being implemented in some way, right? That it's non-escapable, that there is not a choice involved. So we're removing agency. All these terms requiring some form of operationalizing, but nonetheless, that's to me what force means, which is why I think, and fear, but I don't, um, I, I guess my concern with fear is that it is a lot more vague than force. And also, what about when you are removing fear from a, 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 a some context, from some condition, to be able to give an animal more choices, more agency, but you're removing the fear. So if you're working with a fearful animal, can you say that the training itself is fear-free? Right, so it's not always clear, um, but so all of this, they're not great terms, I guess is my summary there, but we kind of choose what works best. And as long as we can be clear in what we mean by that, when we describe it, and it has a certain uh, uh, acknowledgement by the community, great, so. Well, one of the, my questions I wanted the panel to address, and I'm going to jump to that, the one that was right in the middle, and in some way I think this is the most important, is how do the guiding principles and LEMA differ and why does it matter? And Eddie, you kind of already partially answered that, and mm -hmm. that is because we are also considering the welfare of the animal, which LEMA doesn't. Is that a fair assessment? Right. 
Well, and, yeah. and, I, and I think we're also, you know, for want of a better word, and I don't, I, I'm always very careful about how I term this because as an association, you know, professionals have got to have autonomy to perform their trade, their craft, right? Nobody's going to join an association that dictates how and what you do and when you do it. But I think the guiding principles are really important because they actually put parameters in place. Whereas with Lima and also Libby, which we have on our website, there is the ability to just keep ratcheting up in terms of what you're doing. So it's almost permissive, isn't it? And a lot of people will argue, well, you know, I use Lima, but I don't ever, you know, go to level six. Well, but where, how far do you go and under what circumstances? Because for me, I, I don't think I would even get past level two or three. I'm not, uh, I'd have to go and actually look at the chart because for me, there are non-negotiables. that I, There are things that I'm just not prepared to do in the name of training. And I think, and Karen overall for me, I mean, she she stated it once at a PPG summit. She, there was a conversation with about 15 people over a glass of wine. And somebody said to her, and Karen, I'm sorry if I, um, I, I misquote you, but the you'll get the gist. Somebody said, but isn't there, you know, there's a strong, is, is there a strong argument for that in those particular cases where, you know, you're going to use a shot collar over euthanizing a dog. And Karen said, if you are a skilled ta tactician and you know what you're doing, and in the case of a serious behavioral problem, you're also working with a behaviorist and you're looking at pharmacological intervention, then no, you should never have to use those types of tools. And she actually compared it with like taking a, a, a mentally or physically handicapped child and using physical force and fear and pain to get them to conform to some type of behavior. I mean, we just wouldn't do that, would we? The, ethically, we just wouldn't do that. Well, I mean, people do. I'm sure there are people that do do that. The point being that there is never an excuse. There's never a justifiable excuse to put a dog through fear or pain in the name of training. And I know we're not here tonight to talk about Libby, but Libby is the model that we have on our website. It's a model that James O'Hara has worked with. Uh, I studied under James O'Hara, so that's he's sort of my mentor. And one of the things that that, that algorithm asks is, is the behavior really important enough to go to the next level? Or is it just because somebody wants to teach that particular behavior? Because if that behavior is not critical and you can't get there using what you're using and you've referred out and you've got pharmacological intervention, just stop, just stop doing what you're doing and look at some other way. So that I'm gonna get off my soapbox now because that's something I just, I feel really passionate about because I have had some very heated discussions with people that, that insist to this day that there are always cases where you will always come across one or two cases in your career where putting a shot collar on a dog and whacking it up to level 30 is potentially the only solution. And it's not, it's just absolutely not. Kim. Um, I'm in agreement with Nikki um, in that, you know, with Lima, it's welfare first. But with the guiding principles, it's welfare always. To me, that's the biggest distinction. I love that, Kim. I love that. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. And I, I think, too, that there becomes an issue sometimes. And I know, Don, when we get to, I think, your fifth question of the day, which is when we're working with a, a human client, is how are we defining things like welfare, fear, um, um, to, to um, Eduardo's point, you know, if we're working with a fearful animal, are we really being fear-free? 
you know, so the pet parents' expectations sometimes and their understandings of um, what we're going to do with their animal doesn't match up with the trainer. And it can be very confusing. So I think that that's where it gets a little bit muddied sometimes. And I think that's why Lima is often accepted mm -hmm. um, as a hierarchy to follow because those definitions, like Eddie pointed out, are just very muddy. I think the guiding principles are very clear. Well, and I think some people like muddy because yeah. it allows them to do things the guiding principles wouldn't. And I, I'm going to throw out here, I think the, the other two advantages that uh, the guiding principles have, and uh, any of you please chip in if you disagree, but one, um, Lima started in a book and now has been used by many different organizations all in their own way with ne necessarily an agreement even amongst themselves on what it is, where the guiding principle or where guiding principles are really clear. Um, those those are set in stone. They're controlled by PPG. And the other thing, and Nikki, you alluded to this early on. Beyond those guiding principles, we have a really strong code of ethical conduct. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that anymore, or do, do any of the other panel members have? Did I did I miss anything else that differentiates the well, two? I I I think as well, Don, and I think um, we can't be remiss about this is that once the guiding principles have been written and and they're written by somebody me who practically had worked this system, so I knew that it was practically we were, it, was, it was something that could absolutely be achieved. It was then also really important to have a very professional ethics complaint process recognizing that we were going to get ethics complaints if we put a position out there and a code of conduct and guiding principles that says this is non-negotiable this is not it was only a matter of time until ethics complaints came in so we had to then put together a professional system that allowed for professional members to have concerns about other members or non-members because we get customers that complain about members um, it had to be objective, it had to be tangible, it had to be confidential, and it had to also be um, educational, because often when we get ethics complaints, the person putting the complaint in wants the member immediately thrown out of the organization, because which, again, it goes to that punitive, doesn't it, that they've got to be punished, and, and, I, and I can't share with you, I wish I could, the numerous occasions where and ethics complaints come in. An example, many years ago in Arizona, um, an ethics complaint came in because a, a pet care member was using water sprays in daycare for dogs that they felt were um, potentially going to fight. Two of our members in Arizona offered and volunteered to go to the facility and train the staff and look at handling and look at communication and look at alternatives. So that member then, through other members learn far better operational practices. So it was simply a case of somebody just not knowing any better. So our ethics process is not designed to punish and hand draw and quarter people. Yes, there are some people that are removed immediately because they're using tools that are non-negotiable and they basically lied on their application. But the majority of ethics complaints come in actually provide for great educational opportunities. 
And I think we've got to remember that one of our missions is to help provide a working environment where our members can prosper and where they can continually gather and become more educated. So that is a huge role of ours at PPG. It's not just about punishing people. Um, and Eddie, Eddie has a great spiel on the hypocrisy of a lot of trainers who are force free because they're complaining about other trainers using you know, force, but they're using force and bullying tactics in the way that they're dealing with those people. So I think we've always got to be very cognizant of that. And we have to lead by example and be ambassadors for our own guiding principles, right? Particularly in the way that we treat and treat and and, and deal with the, the human side of the of the partnership as well. So I'm going to move us on to our next question. And I think um, Eddie and others have emphasized how Confusing this topic can be even for those of us here, and we want the average pet professional, someone just new, to be under be able to understand this as, as well, which is one of the reasons we're talking about this issue here. But how do we get our own profession to better understand what these terms mean and why they're so important since since we only have self-regulation now and you know and and this this may be the best place for it to stay i don't want to get into another topic but if we start adding at least in the u.s 50 state governments trying to define all of these things too um i i think we'll just all go insane but what are your thoughts on that how do we get others in our profession to better understand this and then translating it even further to our clients. Debbie. Well, I think, um, you know, what Zazie was talking about, humans who use the, the study that was done um, and humans who use reward-based know more about dog behavior. And so, of course, we have the dogs who are more motivated. So I think when we talk to clients and other professionals and we're talking about considering the welfare of the animal, if you can, if you know dog behavior and if you can read dog body language, you know, let's just look at the dog and we have all the answers that we need, right? If a dog's coming, coming over and, and coming to your call happily, or if the dog's coming over who's just been shocked, we've all seen the pictures and the eyes are big and the ears are back and the poor dog is saying, please don't, you know, did I get it right? And it's heartbreaking. So um, I think it's really to get the humans to look at the dog in front of them, see the dog. Does that make sense? And, and understand the dog, right? Understand what the dog's right. communicating, yeah. Kim. I think mentorship is really important in our profession. And I was really lucky when I was a young trainer to have some really lovely mentors who taught me about positive reinforcement, force-free training, clicker training, who steered me from one dog training school I was interested in to another that was more appropriate. And I'm so grateful for that because sometimes when you, when you go to these dog training schools, they they put you into a community of people. And that to me is what I value the most is the community of people that I have as a result of, of those formal educations. 
Um, but now anytime, I mean, where I live, there are so many dog trainers who are just cropping up all the time. They're like weeds. Um, and when I see someone who claims to be positive reinforcement, I reach out to them and I want to find out if they're a PPG member, learn more about them, um, and have coffee with them, talk training with them, try to, and I'm just starting actually to do this. Um, I usually have people coming to me saying, will you mentor me? Um, and when those people come to me, I, I ask them if they've been to any sort of formal dog training. And if they haven't, I often steer them off to um, an online school that they can do. And then I can mentor them along with that program. But I think that having that in-person kind of one-on-one -on -one connection with another professional is so important because we can take all the webinars and we can take all the online programs and it's not going to to mean as much as having that connection with a mentor i think that's really important yeah i think you hit on something very very important there and i know i've had some very important mentors in my career that have really really um played a big part in, in the person I've become. But I, I wanna play devil's advocate here to, to something that, that Debbie said. And she was talking about knowing the body language and understand the emotions of dogs. And at the same time, I'm gonna plug next month's panel, which is called the why and how of teaching our students the importance of understanding our pets' emotions and body language. And one of the reasons we're doing that is because at least in my area, very few training classes for the clients even address body language and emotions and many times they're not addressing it is because the people teaching it don't understand it so i don't think we can depend on that that alone so what other things how, how do we and maybe we'll talk about this more next month but i'm what i'm really asking is how can we get our own profession to first better understand this first. And I wanna, when I'm talking about professions, I'm talking about veterinarians, groomers, everybody, because there are some vet clinics that don't even understand body I, language, I, cats I, I or dogs. I struggle with the whole question, Don, and you and I have, we have this conversation all the time. I mean, we don't even have professional associations representing hundreds, if not thousands of trainers that can agree to take certain equipment off the table. So how can we influence the, the sort of mass population of pet owners and other professionals, right? I mean, how, I mean, even to this day, um, we have three other large associations. In fact, I can think of a fourth one that mandates that all, all training tools should be on the table. And, and that, that for me is a bigger question. No, I, I agree. That's a huge question too, Debbie. I mean, just, you know, starting small in, in your own community. Um, we've talked about this before. Ripples. But go to see the veterinarians in your area, you know, bring them cookies and and ask if you could have some of their time. And around here, my veterinarians have really responded well to that. And I've had all these people that do terrible things removed from the list. You know, I also, I, I bring lunch to my animal control officers in town and um, they're great. They're the dog park coalition wanted um, a trainer to come and speak and they had somebody 
else lined up and they talked to the animal control and the animal control said, no, call Debbie. So even though I don't go to dog parks, you know, myself, I went and the um, president of the dog park coalition said, I hope you're bringing your dog. And I said, well, I won't be, but I'll be there. Um, so I think, I think we start small and we reach the people that we can reach, right? Yeah, you know? absolutely. I mean, we have to, there's only so many people that we are in our sort of circle of, of influence. Right. right. But and there's, you know, to go to your local them. library, ask them if you could do a program. You know, I did yep. that and people loved it. Everybody wants to learn about dogs. And, and then kinds of the, people, right? Because, I mean, we all know if you try, I mean, if you look at motivational interviewing, if you try to educate people, people don't like being lectured to. They don't want facts thrown down their face. They want, they want you have to you have to put them in a position where they unmask their own ambivalence about what they're doing versus what they want to do absolutely so, so that they internally are, are driving the change in their own behavior you can't yes. you can't persuade or control or manipulate somebody else into changing their own behavior not right but even but starting small and even so so I went and spoke at the dog park coalition right well then the Rotary Club who the hell knew there was a Rotary Club <laughs> I didn't know. they reached out and said will you come and speak to us so I'm going to speak to them you know in in July and I think we just really have to get it out there I mean there's a um there's a person in the in the town in leisure services who's been putting on a class for. 30 years and she uses choke chains and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to approach leisure services to just say hey you know have you looked into the latest information on um dog welfare you know what's good for dogs and you know you have to kind of be careful like you know everybody's talking about Eddie we don't want to be I don't want to be a bully um myself but i i want to save the dogs i want i want it to be better for them so i'm gonna just throw out a, those are all good ideas a, a couple of other ones as well uh there are lots of service clubs uh beyond rotary even lions clubs kiwanis um i've done presentations with all of them getting into school groups girl scouts uh cub scouts um are great places to go and um, there are a lot, we have in our area, um, a lot of programs for seniors, educational programs for seniors. And I've done some work with them. And where that works really, really nice is those, those seniors ask really, really good questions. They go on and then teach their grandkids. So another way that we can, can get into some of those. But I see we are, are nearing the, the end of our time here. I wanna thank everyone on the panel and our listeners for coming, but does anyone in the panel have any last remarks on this before we call it a night? Eddie. Yeah, I, I just wanted to mention because we've brought this up a couple of times about not being a bully, not using verbal aversives, um, with other trainers to try to change their behavior forcefully, um, which I think is incredibly important. Um, this is a conversation Ken Ramirez and I have had um, where we talk about, I think one of the ways that helps um, people understand this is that regardless of the methods that people are using, 
everyone that I know of that I've ever met at, uh, in that room is interested in the welfare of that animal in improving the lives of the animal. So you may not agree with their methods and you may think that, and there's lots of data out there to show that their methods may in fact be detrimental, but their intent, their, that person is still trying to improve, like they're not doing this because they just like choking or, or pronging or, or shocking animals, right? We hope not. They're doing this because they think it makes the animal's life better in some way. So everyone in that everyone involved is and if you keep that in mind i think it makes it easier to be able to have these discussions and um this is interesting to point out so uh ivan uh balabanov has invited me to come on to his podcast and i immediately responded with uh i think that would be a great idea but my caveats are that it's going to involve a lot of science, our general discussion, and it has to be a public and moderated discussion that I'm not just going to show up onto his podcast and, and let him edit the conversation. Oh my um, goodness. The, yeah, the, the key point, though, is that the focus is on a discussion where we're bringing science to the table. So that, I mean, that's my expertise, right? Mm -hmm. That's what I do. I'm a research scientist. I'm a, I'm a welfareist. I'm, I'm an applied animal behaviorist that does research. Um, so Ivan, I may not pronounce his last name correctly. Somebody else, because I pronounce Balab lots of things incorrectly. So Balabanov, right? Ivan Balabanov. So, yeah. um, and, and he promotes the, I mean, this is what uh, uh, it's, it, this is, Michael Shikagio went on his podcast a number of months ago and, and there was a lot of, uh, of concern. So, yep. So Clive Wynn has been on there. Um, he's done a number of podcasts with a number of people. Michael Perrone, Dr. Michael Perrone. Um, Susan Garrett was recently on there. Uh, Joe Rossi was, was on there, I think. Um, so a number of people, but uh, I think having that public discourse is important under a moderated discussion and where we're not just sitting there and being, I mean, that's the, to me, the pinnacle of, I've got to remember my own words here of there's no reason to bring verbal aversives to the table. So have that discussion. And the discussion is really for the audience, not for, you know, what I'm right. him to agree to. So, okay. Anyone else with last words? Sazzy. I mean, this is something I say often, but I just want to re reiterate that it's really important to keep on talking about why we use reward-based methods, why we're guided by these things, and to be encouraging other people to do so, because it makes such a big difference. And as people have said, start small, but keep on talking. Just keep on talking about those things all the time, and it helps to change people's minds. That it does. Anything else going once, twice? Okay. Thank you, listeners. We appreciate for tuning in tonight. Panel, thank you for being here. And just a reminder, uh, on July 19th uh, at 12 p.m., back to our regular time, our panel discussion will be the why and how of teaching our students the importance 
of understanding our pet's emotions and body language. And we hope we will see you then. Take Thank care. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Have a good Thanks, night. Everybody. Thanks. Happy Father's Bye. Day. Thank you. <laughs>